Under the Helmet. You'll do your thing, all right? Don't be nervous, okay? The show that looks at long-term player value in fantasy football. It's the moment right here. We're going to have to decide what, what type of team we want to be. Building Dynasties each and every week. I don't even know your name. What's your name? Chad Parsons. I'm telling you, man, you're leading the league in hydration. I got a Dynasty team reaping rewards for the next decade. Katie Flower. You may beat me, but you will not outwork me. Tim Torch. There's only one winner, Chad. Find their written and premium audio content at uthdynasty.com. Playing it safe in Dynasty means you're going to lose. Stop talking about it, man. Let's get this going right now. Welcome to Under the Helmet. Look at some long-term player value in fantasy football. I'm your host, Chad Parsons, joined by Matt Hicks. We have a guest uh, co-host this week. Pretty excited about it. At the FF underscore educator, you can find him over at NFL Draft Bible. He's doing some things with Sports Illustrated as well. And we're going to be talking a lot about previous rookie class as well as this year and maybe future uh, rookie classes. Want to remind you, this is the official podcast of UTHDynasty.com. You're not going to hear a bunch of ads about underwear on this podcast. So if you want to support what uh, what we do at UTH. You can become a general manager subscriber. Uh, we got a great dynasty trading strategy series going on about six to eight shows, all about 20 to 40 minutes going into all the different environments of dynasty trading for the tips and techniques and tactics you need to have your best trading season. And frankly, build that toolbox so that you can go forward uh, with confidence that you're going to execute more winning deals to help your dynasty uh, leagues and teams, Uh, as well as patreon.com slash UTH if you want even more additional content. Uh, Tim Torch is over there doing a feature podcast with me weekly. We actually have a VIP session with uh, with all the higher tier folks this coming week. Uh, I think it's Wednesday, uh, depending on when you're listening to this. But uh, those are, again, strategy sessions that uh, only the VIPs and the upper tiers are able to partake a couple times a month in the regular, uh, in, in the off season, excuse me. And, uh, Matt, let's get to it. Uh, so we are going to discuss a lot about previous classes. And I think one, one player that might, you know, this is almost like a get to know you session that the way you answer this question, the, the one or two bullet points you provide may determine how good of friends we can be. It could determine, uh, how you feel about prospects and maybe how you adjust after the fact as well, but how are you handling James Robinson? from a valuation perspective and projecting ahead because he certainly came out of the ether and now you have some found money. Are you keeping the money? Is the money going to earn more money in the future or is the money going to turn back into something uh, less optimal? Oh, this is coming right out the bat here. I feel like this is a choose your own adventure with a, with a whole lot on the line. Turn to page 83. (laughs) For me, I listen, I love the James Robinson story. I do. I love the kid out of camp making an undrafted free agent, you know, this is why I, I love digging it and watching, you know, 150 guys a year and, and finding these this, you know, next James Robinson story. But for me, if I have them, I, I've already moved them or I'm going to move him before the season starts. And quite frankly, I'm moving them now because I really expect the Jaguars to uh, attack free agency at the running back position and attack the running back position in the draft. I think they add probably at least two extra guys to that running back room. Uh, And and they would have to do that just out of being an NFL team, right? You can't roll with just one running back, which is really the situation they're in. So I think I can only see James Robinson's value going down and that's not knocking him as a player. I've been kind of comparing it to the Philip Lindsay trajectory where just at some point, I think we hit a ceiling and from an NFL perspective, they're going to look at bringing in, you know, a player with similar value to Melvin uh, Gordon, and he's going to get, you know, pushed down to a 35, 40% market share, which isn't terrible, 
but I don't think his value is ever going to be higher than it is now. So I understand why some folks would want to hold at this point. He was fun. He was energetic. It was a great rookie season, but I'd probably be cashing out at that value. Yeah. One thing I go over and over again is, you know, the, how many times are you uh, met with competition on the depth chart? Because really the Jags, as you said, were in a bad spot, right? I mean, they, they let Leonard Fournette go. They weren't going anywhere as a team and they rolled with Robinson and sort of the iteration of the offense. But now you get a full reset. You know, they have a ton of picks. They have a ton of cap. And if they had neither of those two things, I think you'd feel better, you know, because it would probably be a low level veteran addition. But now, I mean, I, I look at the list of potential free agents and you have to go pretty far to say, okay, I wouldn't be worried about this addition. And that's really the problem with an undrafted player, almost no matter how they produce, or even if he was a round six, round seven guy, you're, you're, you're trying to sharpshoot right Arian Foster or something like that of saying the perfect storm of a two, three, four year run or Alfred Morris or something like that, where you just go, this does not happen. Um, and unfortunately they have a bunch of capital, you know, so even a round three, round four pick, and really you should be quaking in your boots. So, so I like what you said about now, because free agency, even if he emerges through that, it's not going to make him more valuable. All it's going to do is make you a little more nervous going into the draft, probably, because we don't even know, you know, Reichwell Armstead, Chris Thompson. I mean, they had nothing else. And so, like you said, I mean, no, no matter what, they got to add one to two bodies, and they're probably going to be more notable bodies than Chris Thompson, unfortunately. Yeah, I'd be shocked. I'd be shocked if we're done with day two of the NFL draft, the first three rounds, and the Jaguars haven't taken a running back. I, I expect Urban Meyer to come in. He's not known for being a patient coach, right? So he's going to come in. He's going to add some weapons to the room. And one of the one of the biggest things for a rookie quarterback, right? I think we're all assuming Trevor Lawrence is the first quarterback off the board for the Jaguars. One of the biggest things you can do for a rookie quarterback is give him support in the running game. And I think Urban Meyer is going to recognize that. He's going to understand that. Although James Robinson can be a piece of the puzzle, he can't be your only piece moving forward. Yeah, I just I really look back and my two guys were James Robinson and Michael Warren. And I remember some of these round four, round five picks that I had in deeper leagues. And I took a couple shots on Michael Warren and not James Robinson. And I always remind folks, I was like, so I want to know who, you know, screenshots required, please. Like who in May drafted in the fourth round, fifth round, whatever, James Robinson. And that's not the end of the story. It's did you hold him all the way to the point where he actually had value? Because then he was running back three, four you know, behind all those other guys like Armstead and Fournette. And uh, so, so this perfect storm in late August, I think it was where all this, all this turned around for him. I mean, did you really hold your four eleven rookie pick or whatever it was all the way until you finally had uh, juice dripping from your chin as uh, George Costanza likes to say, but I just, uh, I just, that to me is the thing, the time value of the picks, you know, because the, so, so I almost don't feel like that's a tough beat. You know, you took Michael Warren, you're like, ah, you know, maybe he could be the running back three there. And, and James Robinson was a similar type player that ended up going undrafted. So, but that's why we take our cracks, right? Matt, we're always looking for who's, who's the next guy like that, that could persevere and, and make a splash in three, four months like that. Cause that's frankly what you need with a roster spot is you got to get early returns. Otherwise you're churning for the waiver wire after week one, probably at the latest. Yeah, when you look at it, when you look at Michael Warren compared to James Robinson, I think those are two really interesting guys to talk about. Because if you go back and you do the process, you know, three out of four times, you're probably going to, you know, at that point in time, you're going to look at Michael Warren and say that that pick made more sense than James Robinson, right? There were a variety of factors that happened later in the summer that helped James Robinson, Leonard Fournette getting cut, obviously being the biggest one there. But even Divine Azigbo, he really was kind of favored to win out that job up against James Robinson until he gets put on the COVID list twice. 
Uh, and then you're kind of stuck with even Raquel Armstead, I think, ends up missing time, right? So a variety of factors help James Robinson. But if you go back and through the tape process, Michael Warren is a player who he never had elite traits, which is uh, always worrisome at the running back position. But you understood why he was an attractive pick, especially as a fit in that Philadelphia offense. Now, it never worked out. He didn't end up you know, putting it together. But most third and fourth round rookie picks don't, right? So you kind of you go through the process and looking at Michael Warren's tape, he wasn't the best prospect, but you understand you understand why you would take Michael Warren there more times than James Robinson. And at the end of the day, whenever I'm talking about rookies, you know, whenever I'm doing the podcast, anything like that, I'm always trying to talk about the process because I think that helps a lot more than necessarily saying like, man, I nailed James Robinson. And you go back and you say, okay, can you tell me what you actually did, right, to nail James Robinson's pick? And can you translate that to this year's class? Or did you look at a player with good upside and then the situation helped you out? I mean, at the end of the day, we all need help with our players, right? We need some luck to fall our way to really capitalize on the upside of players. I think people forget that, you know, if you look for, you know, I always reference, you know, Stefan Diggs, for example, right? A guy coming from day three and really getting all the way to this point, progressing well, but he was a day three guy. He was around three, I think maybe even around four rookie pick. And so, the, the process here, like you said, is, is important because you don't get cracks at this. And this is why I go back to 2020 and I say, you know, Chase Claypool, I really should have been more in on him because it made sense. And honestly, Chad from five years ago would have done exactly that because I love the big guys that moved that had a little bit of questionable production where you go, ah, boom, bust. And, you know, he goes to that loaded depth chart, but I would have been all over that. And, and the biggest part for me, and I, I like what you said, which is, you know, prices or where are they going is a key. You know, can they get some help on their depth chart? Certainly. But, you know, Chase Claypool was going at an interesting point, late second, early third, where it kind of dried up. And, and so I kind of forced in a couple of spots running back where it was suboptimal. And I think that's really the key part of, you know, people try to go for trends. And I mean, it's easy to kind of look back and try to create these narratives or overarching. This is my plan. This is my my process. This is, These are my rules. Well, every year is different, right? I mean, you may not have a Chase Claypool this year, teaser, you probably don't, historically speaking, but that is just so much explosive upside, you know, or Stefan Diggs, for example. I mean, he was like, a, I think a top one or two, three percenter in my projection model. And you typically don't get a wide receiver crack like that in the third or fourth round. So when it comes around, you kind of have to make an exception and go, this is breaking sort of rules or tradition or whatever you want to say. And do you have any sort of like overarching mantras or general, if, if I see this, I kind of have to be in on certain prospects regardless of position. Yeah. For me, it's one of the things that I've learned is that you really have to trust your process. Right. And so, you know, as an analyst versus somebody who doesn't have time to really, you know, or, or I should say is more of a consumer of, of the content, right. Whether it's, it's you actually doing the work or you knowing who to trust that, that has the time, you know, to really grind tape. That's what I say. You know, at the end of the day, I just have more time to do this than a lot of other folks. Um, and so, you know, for me, it's really about trusting your evaluations. And that can be so difficult. It sounds so easy right now in February. But once uh, that player gets drafted to a team and once you start seeing Twitter, you know, swirl with different takes and folks who probably haven't watched more than highlight clips on some of these rookies, you start to get these ta- these takes that that spin player valuations all over the place. So really kind of stick to your guns going into the draft. Understand who the people are that you like and, and take value. You know, you draft for value and then you trade for need is kind of the, the position that I take. And so for me, uh, if I go into that second round and there is somebody sitting on the board 
that has an ADP in the mid third round and, and I want that player, I'm going to take that player because I believe in their upside. That's my evaluation. And listen, if you hit and miss, you can forgive yourself uh, unless you got the 101 through 103, right? And you hit and miss. Uh, otherwise, you could forgive yourself in a rookie draft. But what can't you forgive yourself on if you don't take the player and then that player pops off? Like, that's the thing that I can't live down. So for me, you know, throw ADP out the window for the most part. You know, obviously, you know the difference between a first and third rounder, right? But go into the draft, do your homework, and, and don't sway based off of, you know, the, the takes on Twitter or don't sway too much based on your roster needs. Obviously take that into account, but draft for that value and then trade later on for positional need because you know your league mates, right? They're going to keep trading all the way throughout the summer. You could find those opportunities to get that. Uh, the other, you know, big rule that I have, and, and this is probably my number one rule. Uh, anybody who follows me on Twitter, I tweet this out like every two or three weeks. Like today is a good day to, to trade for a second and third round pick. Don't trade for first round picks unless you really need it or unless you're trading up, you know, you already have the 105, you're trying to get to the 101. That's fine. But but don't spend a lot of lot of capital right now trading for first round picks. It's too late in the game. You should have been doing that back in the fall. Right now, when you're going to get your value, especially in this year's class, trade for second round picks, trade for third round picks. People think third round picks are throwaway picks. If you end up with four of those in your draft, you're going to hit on one of those four picks. And maybe the other three don't hit. But if you hit on one of those, you have this year's Gabriel Davis, right? So there's a lot of upside there in the third round. And this year's second round, it's loaded, especially if you're looking at that 201 to 205 spot. And that's where some people got Justin Jefferson last year. That's where you were getting uh, guys like uh, T. Higgins last year. So there's a lot of upside when it comes to the second and third round. It doesn't end with just those first round picks. I think that for me is my, my biggest thing. Stock up on those mid-round picks. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's one of the, the the tenets I put in about trading in rookie drafts or trading regarding rookie picks in that, that dynasty trading series is find your league threshold. Like some, when you get in a startup draft, they'll they'll easily trade away first rounders, a few owners maybe. Um, but seconds, thirds, fourths, wherever that threshold is, there will be a line where a lot of teams will just give away their picks. Give them away for marginal upgrades in that draft, but even in future years, they'll give them away. And that's where I say, you know, just be the collector. Be open to that because that if that's where the discount is, even if you don't plan on making all those picks, hey, it's a 28-man roster. I can't, you know, take three third rounders and three fourth rounders and put them on the back in my roster every year. But that doesn't mean you can't take them because like you're saying, I mean, get them and then later figure out what you're going to do with them. You can trade up. And cause I, my, my go-to uh, math line is how many, you know, how many fourth rounders does it take to get a future first rounder? And I say one, because you could trade two fourths for a third the next year, two thirds for the second, two seconds for the first. And eventually, boom, you got a cornerstone guy and you got it from some, you know, 46 overall pick four years ago. It takes some time, takes some patience and uh, obviously some tracking and bookkeeping. But uh, um, yeah, let's get into uh, a, a few uh, details about this class. So I guess this is a two pronged question. Most in some order have Najee Harris, Travis Etienne, and Javante Williams as their big three or top three uh, at the running back position. I think the most interesting would be who's running back four. So if if that isn't your big three, uh, then let me know. But but who's running back four? Because there seems to be a pretty consensus giant drop off, and and you know maybe landing spot. Uh, we'll we'll clean that up a little bit late April. But for right now, uh, it's those three and sort of the rest. It's a really good question. For me, the, the drop-off is actually after running back, too. And it's a pretty controversial take. It's definitely not consensus right now. 
I am not as high on Javante Williams as it seems like a lot of folks are out there. For me, it's it's Najee Harris one, Travis Etienne two, and then we hit the cliff. And so for me, my running back three is actually not somebody who you're going to hear for running back three a lot. Maybe it'll change by the time we get to the NFL draft and the NFL tells me they don't like him as much as, as I do. But I really like Javion Hawkins out of Louisville. And he's wow. my running back three. It's not, I told you, it's not a popular take. No, I love, the, I love the guy. <laughs> and I think I'm pretty bullish on him. But when you said three, I'm like, wow. Um, so I, we'll first start with the, the Javante Williams. So like, so yeah, I, am, yeah. I am with you. I, I am lower on him than most. Um, give me one or two bullet points on why you're more concerned. So my biggest thing with Javante Williams, and, and I, I want to be clear here, he doesn't have a terrible grade for me, right? He's graded out as my running back four. So he doesn't have a terrible grade, but my biggest red flag for him, it's a really big red flag. It's weighted heavy in my evaluation. I don't like his vision. I think he's got inconsistent vision. You could see on tape, he consistently runs into the back of his offensive lineman. And somebody who does that consistently, that's a major red flag. That shows, that shows a mental processing error when it comes to finding gaps on the field. When he breaks off big runs in that North Carolina offense, it's usually in big gaps. And although he can get to the edge quick, he's not burning downfield. So I do worry a little bit about his translation. Everybody, you know, is kind of touting him as a three down back. I'm not convinced that he is. He could be. He could go to the NFL. I could look stupid, but I'm proceeding with a little bit more caution. And then you look at the offense he was playing in. It's not lost on me that Michael Carter, his backfield mate, actually outrushed him this season in North Carolina. Now it was 1,200 yards to 1,100 yards, so it's nothing to shake your head at. But clearly the system was in place there, and his running back mate, who uh, weighs in at 5'7", 202, he outrushed him. So for me, it's it's not as consensus, and, and I'm nowhere near the bullish takes. You know, you see Javante Williams over Najee Harris on the timeline. You see Javante Williams over Travis Etienne. I think that's a little bit more common of a take for me. He's just in. He's just not in that top tier, and and I can't see it. Uh, no pun intended there with the vision. <laughs> yeah, I, I, when you pointed that out, I, I you know you had that thunder and lightning there with Michael Carter, and I mean, how often do you see? And I, I don't track this specifically, but how often do you see a guy that's basically in a committee? You know, his final year, and yet he's going to be viewed as a top, you know, fifty or, or top two round sort of NFL draft position early in the process. It just seems pretty rare, especially when you have a, well, was he ever really the guy in college? And then if he wasn't, well, oh, he translates better to the NFL. That sounds like more of a, of a wide receiver type situation there uh, for a guy that, you know, doesn't really have NFL traits. And then, uh, you know, he produced a lot. He was that high floor guy in college. And then you get the, his teammate that ends up being the, that more of the alpha type and goes, you know, around higher or something like that. And I, I just find that interesting at the running back position with Javante Williams. So, so yeah, I agree with you there. So, so get in, I mean, this is fan in the flame of my love here because JV and Hawkins, um, you know, is an under the radar name and, and I would almost tag it sleeper. And yet for you, you're like, sleeper. Uh, try this running back three. I'm trying to hype him up as much as possible. And here's the thing uh, for me, it's really important that pre-draft I let my tape grades really stay true. And I don't always hit on my tape grades, right? Like I'm, I'm not sitting here and pretending like I get every player right perfectly, but my thought process process is that I'm going to trust my eye and my evaluation up until the NFL draft. And if the NFL draft, you know, JV Hawkins goes round five, I'm going to have to say, okay, clearly the NFL knows something that I don't, or they're seeing something, 
or not appreciating him at the level that I'm appreciating him. And then he slides down the rankings. But if he goes day two and Javante Williams goes day two, you know, barring, uh, you know, Hawkins being stuck in a, in a horrible running back by committee situation or something like that, he's going to end up being the higher back for me. For me, Hawkins brings a lot to the table. It starts with his athleticism. It starts with his change of direction ability. And contrary to Williams, he has some of the best field vision I've seen. He worked in a really tough offense, very few holes. He created a lot of his own space, which is something that I don't feel like he's being given enough credit for. He's super fast, a verified 4-3-8 guy in high school. Uh, if he ran at the combine, would he run that fast? No, probably not. He's probably a low 4-4 guy, but he's got the speed. And I think he looked really good in Louisville. One of the reasons that he's not going to pop off the, the charts here, if you're a box score, um, or I shouldn't even say that, if you're paying attention to box scores or you're more production focused, one of the things that you're going to knock Hawkins on is his lack of pass catching ability. And it's not that he can't catch the ball. It's that the Louisville offense simply did not ask him to catch the ball, which is one thing I never knock a running back on, but I think it is a reason that he's lower on other folks' rankings. So uh, if you're familiar with the Louisville offense, it's a run-heavy offense. The quarterback runs. They have two uh, NFL prospects at 2-2 Atwell and Des Fitzpatrick at the wide receiver position that they were throwing the ball to in the very rare occasion that they threw the ball. So Hawkins oftentimes was doing a lot with a little. Uh, and one of the other myths that I'm trying to dispel about Hawkins, uh, a lot of folks are, are claiming that he's undersized. He's 5'9", 196. And he came into Louisville about a buck 55. He was really small when he came into Louisville and he bulked up over those years. But his most recent weigh in this season was at 195. So he's definitely not still undersized in the way that he came to Louisville. Yeah, I think people forget, you know, where you need to just have a moving bar. If a guy is undersized, and again, we'd love for a lot of running backs coming in to be 210, 220 plus, but you need to have that requisite athleticism. You know, can you get into the four fours? Can you be a little better than that? Can you be a dynamic mover for your size? So it's a sliding scale. I mean, obviously, if you go down into the 180s or something like that, it's going to be a real tough road no matter what. I mean, Darren, Darren Sproul style, but, but yeah, Hawkins. And then one thing I would point out while you were talking, he didn't get a lot of usage as a receiver. But one thing I track and sort of blend it together is the running back only market share. And when you look at those sort of prisms, that's when you get, oh, he did have two very nice seasons because it's not that he didn't catch the ball. Overarchingly, that position didn't catch the ball. And I think that's where it can really point to guys that, hey, they're just stuck in a situation where, you know, maybe 8, 10, 12 yards per game through the air is really good uh, when you look at the, the current coaching staff and scheme. So, um, you know, Hawkins definitely fits that mold because with a guy of his, you know, 195, 200, something like that, that you really do want a guy that's a dynamic receiver. The good news for him is he definitely checks that box from a market share standpoint that says, well, of all the Louisville guys, he was the dominant one for two seasons. And then you have the fact that he is probably going to, you know, he is a four, three or low four fours guy, which means again, that sub size frame, uh, CJ Spiller type. I mean, you want a dynamic guy, uh, if you are going to go low weight, uh, you know, relative to the position and he certainly qualifies. The one thing I was going to say is, you know, you said you, you wait for the NFL draft position and you know, that can sort of alter your thinking. The good news is if you like a player, he ends up going around four round five. You're like, ah, I mean, that just means you're going to get him a couple rounds cheaper in rookie drafts probably 
probably. And that's not all bad. He's just a target player in a different zone, which is what I would remind folks. And, you know, if you have a target player and they end up going higher, like I remember AJ Dillon last year, I was like, oh, I'll probably get him in, you know, 210, and, you know, 302. Cause, he, you know, he, maybe he'll go round four, maybe late, late round three. And then he goes uh, a lot higher than that into the Packers. And he ends up, you know, you start having to take him in the top 15 to 18, you know, if you really want to say he's a target player and get a good exposure uh, to him. Yeah, if you're looking at the characteristic of this class too, one thing I'll I'll add going off of that is that, you know, we were talking about the value of third and fourth round picks. There's going to be a lot of running backs this year that I think are going to fall in that third, fourth round range that you're going to get to spend the next couple months here. Listen to your podcast and, and figure out who you like. You know, do you like Michael Carter, Kylan Hill, Larry Roundtree, Jarrett Patterson, Jamar Jefferson? These are some names you know, that are, that have their, their advocates out there, uh, you know, in the community that will, you know, go up and, and pound their fist for and hype them up. And these are guys you're going to get in the third and fourth rounds because the second and third rounds are going to be washed, uh, really strong with wide receivers. The wide receiver depth is going to really hit home in the second round. And so don't do the, don't do the Zach Moss, right? Don't do the Keyshawn Vaughn where you reach down in that second tier of, of running backs, just, just stay put. And, and hold steady, and you're going to get to take your upside shots on some of these guys that are going to go round three or even UDFA in the NFL. How many times do day three or UDFA running backs hit for fantasy football relevancy for short or long-term period? You know, you got your Chris Carson, your Philip Lindsay's. Uh, you have the ability to be patient and don't turn off of a running back specifically in this year's class just because they're day three. And I would remind folks, you know, like 2016, uh, I think I referenced that this could be a class like that a couple of years ago where imagine 2016 without Ezekiel Elliott. So you had that cornerstone guy, but what did people start doing? They were reaching on Devonte Booker, who was like around four, round five NFL guy, you know, in the late first round or early second round. So you kind of chase, I'm used to taking running backs. And what ends up happening is you end up ignoring another position because you're kind of locked in. And so the good news is I think there's going to be a lot of, of, of strong running back prospects, but if they don't have the pedigree and they start going day three, that's when, like you said, you kind of have to wait and say, you know, there's three, four guys I like, I want to pay this price. I'm not going to reach for the top guy of the tier at 206 amidst, you know, some tight ends and wide receivers. And, and, you know, the quarterbacks are going to be in there in super flex as well. So I just, you want to make sure you're getting good bang for your buck and reaching on a running back you liked, but then they end up fading a couple extra rounds in the draft. That's where you kind of have to re refocus, you know, in your, in your rookie draft spectrum of what you're paying as well. Um, when you're evaluating the prospects, um, what's your ratio? Let's let's put a 100 dial. Uh, so you can be 50-50, 75-25. What's your ratio of film versus the data? And I would say this. What happens? Do you have an example? It could be this year. could be a previous example. What happens when they conflict? What if you really like the, the film, don't like the metrics, or vice versa? What do you do? Yeah, so this is a really good question. Uh, and it's one that I get a lot. For me, this is how I look at it. So, uh, you know, I, I work in a... Uh, maybe this helps influence it. I work in a college environment, right? And so, you know, professors, what do they have? They have their expertise and they focus in on their expertise. And then they listen to the folks around them who know the, the content material outside of them, right? So for me, I know how to watch film. I have an evaluation process. I've refined this over the years. I refine it more every year. So my evaluations initially are really informed by tape specifically, there's a variety of factors that build into that over time, right? Uh, as I move players up and down my big board. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's really a film influenced uh, model. However, that being, I'm consistently checking in with my folks who, you know, I trust in the analytics community to just 
you know, kind of kind of put a feel out there like, hey, I have this player pretty high. Do you have this player up there? How does this player look in your model? You know, and then I go and I, how does this player look in your model? And I kind of try to compare it a little bit. And I think the, the best way that I've heard this presented, and, and I really love this, um, uh, Drew DFS Bean Counter. I'm not even going to try to say his last name. Drew O put this in a, in a good framework for me. I was just doing an AMA with his patrons uh, last week. And he said, analytics is really good for telling you who not to draft. And, you know, film, film can be really good for telling you who to draft. So when those two things overlap and you find the nice players in between, that, I think that's when you start to get into the sweet spot. Uh, but for me personally, you know, my process is film-based. And then I'll add in things like draft capital and, and combine performance when we have a combine senior bowl. Uh, and the other thing that I have the ability, you know, to kind of be privy to is a little bit more of an insight on, you know, how the NFL is feeling on guys and kind of cross-checking that. So uh, for me, it really is draft heavy, but that's not a slight against the analytics side of things. It's just, you know, I stay in my lane and I know my analytics people that kind of help me uh, you know, stay on track. Okay. Can you think of a player that you loved film wise and you, your uh, contacts for, for, for uh, analytics was like, yeah, I don't know what you're doing here. Don't do this. Don't do this. And you know, if it was the last class or two, like, do you have an example or maybe an early 2021 where it's like, you got some friends that are trying to talk you out of it <laughs> from that side or coming from another side. I'm trying to think here of, of somebody maybe from last year's class uh, that I was really told, I mean, I got, I, uh, I really, I don't know. I guess nobody really agreed with me on this. I was a lot lower than Jalen Rager on most folks. And I know the analytics community love Jalen Rager. Uh, I could not be talked out of that one. I feel good about that now. Maybe I'll get, uh, maybe, maybe I'll be eating my words here in a year or so, but, uh, you know, Rager's slow, slow projection definitely kind of fit with what I expected him to be. Uh, Henry Ruggs was somebody, my, my analytics curve, you know, community kind of told me to, to back off of. And I was pretty bullish on rugs all the way through until he got drafted by the Raiders. And then I really hated his fit because uh, part of what I look at is not just like, you know, did you end up in an offense that can push the ball downfield? Did you end up in an offense where you're going to get a lot of volume? It's really thinking about how you fit into that offense. And for me, you know, a guy like uh, Henry Ruggs, he, he never should have been the wide receiver, right? He can't be the X in an offense. He needs to be the complimentary guy. And he didn't get that landing spot. So um, you know, I, I don't know if there's anybody that I can say, you know, I, I've bested the analytics side on, or I've really kind of, uh, you know, e eaten uh, my words on. Um, but it often, it really oftentimes comes down to who I'm taking those shots in the late round on, because I'm willing to get a little bit more bullish when it comes there. Yeah. One example, um, I always think about for this and my, maybe my first guy, it was back in 2015 that the, you know, my model hated him. And I, but I, I watched him and he had sparse usage at Florida and I just could not, uh, I just could not get over it. I call them baby Marshawn Lynch. And obviously his career was not baby Marshawn Lynch, but he ended up being a hit. Uh, cause I remember I had some drafts before the NFL draft. He ended up being a surprise day two pick. And that's Matt Jones. Uh, that, I mean, he, he was hurt a decent amount, but he was a big guy. I was like, look at what he's doing after contact. Look at his feet. I love the, my, my mantra is the big, the big back who can move and can catch. 
Because you know what? I think a 225 guy can run inside. It's like uh, Antonio Gibson, David Johnson. It's like, I think they'll figure it out and be able to do it enough, you know, at that size at the NFL, if they can catch, you know, and they can move. And Matt Jones is one of those guys. I remember he was worth a first round pick in his rookie year and it all went to, you know, heck in a handbasket <laughs> after that point. But the point was, I mean, he was dirt cheap, uh, especially pre-draft. And uh, that was one where it was head versus heart uh, on that one um, that, that I remember specifically. And it's easier to do, right? Like, I feel like it's easier to do after your first round pick. You feel a lot of that pressure to really nail your early pick and stick to your process. And then, you know, you could get a little, you could forgive yourself a little bit more, right? When you start missing on second or third. So I, I definitely that, can relate to you that. You said that a few minutes ago, though, of, you know, you really need to get your guys. And I always, I always tell people, you know, they're talking about, oh, I want to mix it up. You know, at 203, I'm going to take this guy a little bit and I'll take this other guy. It's like, if you have a clear cut target player, then you really want, I mean, that's the whole point of rookie drafts and, and, and drafting and building your teams, especially is that you want your guys. So if you believe in somebody, why wouldn't you want them on every team? Like, isn't that like in rookie drafts, they're the most accessible and startups. You've got varying levels of, of where am I in the, on the draft board, existing leagues, you can't trade for everybody that you want. So it's just, I, I really like to embolden and empower people to take their guys, because if you get 67, 70, 75% exposure, when they they, uh, you can, you'll go down with the ship. You're fine. I'm fine missing in a, a ball of flames. Uh, I think it was, uh, man, who did I go down with? Uh, oh, well, Devonte Adams, like he was a, like a post type, not sleeper. I mean, people were off of him completely because he played through that ankle that one year, but like he was one where I was just getting more and more shares. Cause I said, if he's wrong, I'm fine. I'm fine going down with this. And he'll, he'll be an, uh, an outlier for me uh, of saying, you know, if he misses, if this is the best we've ever seen. And one guy just to, I mean, I don't know your thoughts on him, but he, this is where really like my model loves Nikhil Harry and the fact that he's off. So now with two years of data, though, you say he's likely to bust heavily likely to bust. But I thought I did a Twitter poll of, would you rather take who's more likely to hit for like a top 36 season to Harry or a, uh, what was it? I said, I think I said a day three wide receiver from 2021 random. And the side was heavily on the, the day three pick. And I don't think that's the right historical, I haven't run the numbers, but Harry should still be in that 20, 25, 30% hit rate range. And day three is just, a, I mean, shooting, shooting uh, out into the woods. <laughs> You're just hoping it hits something. Um, but Nikhil Harry is always one of, uh, a recent example of one of those interesting cases where you say, you know, historically, this should be a very strong bet. And yet everything that you've seen NFL wise kind of tells you the opposite, which is a, definitely a frustrating profile to kind of track and follow. And one of the things that I always say too, is at the end of the day, remember what we're doing. We're playing fantasy football, right? We're supposed to be having fun with this and, and go ahead and get your guys. So a great example from last year, I I'm pretty sure I have Gabriel Davis rostered on 90% of my leagues. I love Gabriel Davis. I love the landing spot. Everybody was bummed out you know, or, or not paying attention when he went to Buffalo last year, I was doing backflips. Uh, I probably had, I probably was the only person in any of my leagues that kept drafting Jeff Thomas out of new England. He's a super talented guy. He got hurt in camp and he didn't make the team. He needed to make it for special teams in his first year and, you know, earn his way. He ends up, he gets cut from camp. All right. I, I'm end up, you know, I have a dozen shares of Jeff Thomas. I got to cut pretty wide open though. Right. I mean, right? Like, who knows how that plays out because they were looking for anybody and everybody at wide receiver. 
Exactly. So, you know, at the end of the day, if Jeff Thomas had hit, I'd be doing victory laps on Twitter all day because I loved him out of Miami character issues and a variety of other problems that plagued him. And I still, if I had to go back and do it again, I, I would draft Jeff Thomas again because the process makes sense. And he's one of my guys. So at the end of the day, like get your guys because it's more fun when they hit. You want to be that person that can brag in your leagues or, you know, brag anywhere else uh, because you got your guy and you were the one on them before everybody else. That That's that's just as valuable as the actual value in your league, right? The pride, the bragging rights that comes with that. Yep. Uh, so on the theme of overrated prospects, it's early. It's uh, checks the checks the watch. Uh, it is early February, so a lot of time to go. Uh, workouts uh, to whatever degree still to come. NFL draft still to come. And you already mentioned Javante Williams, so you have already used that card. We're taking that out of your deck. So who is and probably maybe top 10, 15 overall. Let's kind of put it within that prism. Maybe who's the most overrated skill position prospect this year? that you've been hearing about a ton. It's on your timeline. You're like, whoa, mock draft. Someone took him at 103 and such and such format. I don't get this at all. He's like 15 on my board, something like that. All right. This is an unpopular take. I've already gotten a lot of flack for it. So I'm just going to keep riding this all the way through uh, draft season. And I hope I'm wrong because I root for every prospect that I don't think is going to hit. I'm not sold on Rashad Bateman. I'm really not. And this, and this is, I think this is uh, a little funny because this is, seems to be one of the few guys where I'm seeing uh, draft Twitter likes him as a top five guy. Analytics Twitter seems to be into him as, as a higher profile guy. And I think in a lot of draft classes, Rashad Bateman could be a top three wide receiver. But for me, just not in this draft class. In Bateman, me not being high on Bateman is, is actually really a reflection on my process. I think three years ago, I would have loved Rashad Bateman but I've kind of learned what traits translate a little bit better to the NFL and what traits don't. Uh, Rashad Bateman's a great route runner. That doesn't tend to actually translate all that well to the NFL. They'll teach you how to run the routes. They'll teach you how to run uh, in the offensive system that it fits. Bateman is good at a lot of things. Really, the, the key thing that he's great at is his contested catch, and that's not something that necessarily translates really well to the NFL. you got to be able to separate because those defensive backs are going to be a lot better than the Big Ten defensive backs consistently, right, in the NFL. They're going to be stickier on you. And as much as everyone loves to throw out those Rashad Bateman highlights, you have to look at the lowlights, and especially in the 2020 season, those lowlights did not look like a guy who right now, uh, NFL Draft Bible ADP has him at 110. And for me, you know, you have to take him over guys uh, like Tyrus Marshall, uh, Tylen Wallace, uh, wide receivers that I just like better than him. He has almost an identical ADP of Rondale Moore. I'd rather take the upside of Rondale Moore uh, over Rashad Bateman. And, and I know that's a much lower consensus than a lot of folks. And, and trust me, Minnesota Gopher Twitter has let me know that they do not agree with that take. But uh, you know what? I, I hope he does well. I, I think he has a solid day two draft capital. A lot of people are projecting him round one. I don't see that happening at all. But I, I think he can just be a good NFL wide receiver. I don't think he's going to be worth this first round draft pick with all the other good wide receivers in this class. Yeah. One important thing I, I, I charge folks with, especially with, you know, guys like maybe Kadarius Tony and, and guys of that ilk where I say, let's go down the decision tree. Are they going to be an alpha number one? And, do, and first of all, before you answer this question, know that there's not 32 of them in the NFL and there's not even 20. So the guys that year over year, the ball's going to funnel through them. So are they that? 
And it doesn't mean if the answer is no, you can't draft them, but it means you, you shouldn't be over the moon. And then you say, can they be a number one, a de facto form, uh, you know, leading a, a team for multiple seasons? If that's no, well, what are they? Are they a number two? Are they a slot guy? Are they number three? And then I think you kind of need to be in on the, the landing spot because they need to be paired with an elite quarterback for a number two or number three guy to matter. You know, so, so those are the real keys. I think people get uh, a little, you know, funneled into bad choices a lot of times in rookie drafts just because they're, they're looking at a process of a guy that has a very limited role ceiling in the NFL in most iterations. And yet you're drafting them at a point where you kind of have alpha or number one expectations when that's really not what they are at a player. And, and I think a lot of times you get uh, on day two, you know, even you get guys that are going to have, you know, some special teams value return value and more NFL value. Cause that's an NFL team drafting them. We're doing something different. And that's why you kind of have to do that almost adjusted draft position of if they offer a lot of other things, that's not really valuable to us. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, Kadarius Tony is another uh, really good, uh, really good pick for this exercise. I think, for me, he's actually one of the biggest uh, variances I see between, you know, the NFL side of my world and the fantasy football side of my world. The NFL seems to be really into this idea that he's a first round pick. And when I watch the tape, I do not see a first round pick. And I specifically don't think his skill set is ever going to translate to first round fantasy football value. So although his ADP right now is in round two, I think he's the type of guy who there's somebody in your league that, that is going to fall in love with him. And he may end up going in the first round. And if that happens, don't, don't feel bad about it. Don't be stressed about it. Just be happy that a good player has fallen an extra spot for you. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's a very real chance that of all the skill positions that Kadarius Tony d- d- discount, you know, don't, we're not even saying round one, but even in the top 100, he may be the lowest uh, analytics, you know, modeling score of all skill positions. And if he goes even close to round one, I mean, just be thankful, like you said, that, that someone else is going to draft him in the first round, top 15, wherever he settles, and that you'll be able to get one extra guy uh, a look at, you know, with your, with your draft position. Let's do. Uh, let's look at some. Some uh, actually, one of these I just noticed that it includes Gabriel Davis. So this is probably going to be leading the witness. Uh, but let's do a, a few rapid fire ones to close up about the 2020 class here. Uh, so more likely to hit for a top 12 season in 2021. So these are promising. You mentioned a couple of them, I think, already on this show. Chase Claypool, Brandon Ayuk, or T. Higgins. If one of them hits as a top 12, who do you think it is next year? I think it's going to be T Higgins. I, I like Chase Claypool and I should say that I've, I've learned to like Chase Claypool because I was also off of him last year. And one of the things that I've tweaked for my model this year is to not, uh, not hold it against players that are kind of in those tweener positions. Right. And I think that was one of the reasons that we, that I pivoted off Claypool last year. I didn't know if he was a tight end or a wide receiver. I like him a lot. I just love T Higgins' situation. He was my wide receiver three in last year's class. I liked him landing in Cincinnati. I think AJ Green's going to be out of town, assuming Joe Burrow is back this year and assuming they get him some freaking offensive line help. Uh, we saw those flashes from T Higgins that showed not only can he be a volume guy, but also a touchdown guy. So I think T Higgins can be that X type receiver that pulls enough volume and red zone usage to get a wide receiver one spot. So I feel pretty confident with that. Yeah, probably high volume there. I, and ancillary, since we're on the Bengals and Joe Mixon, do you think we are in a couple of years talking about how, yeah, you know, the ceiling was never really there? You know, I think that's the key question on Mixon this offseason is 
He really hasn't put it all together. People assume he was a first-round pick. He wasn't. People assume he's a dynamic mover for his size. He hasn't really shown that. People assume that he's he has top three to five potential because look how he caught the ball at Oklahoma. But he's been closer to Plotter in the NFL, and we're still kind of waiting. It feels like if he doesn't put it together this coming year, the bottom's going to fall out a little bit to his to his profile um, and to his value. Do you think that he puts it together? Are the Bengals one of those rising offenses? Like you said, if they fix O-line a little bit, Burrow's healthy and plays most of the season. Are we talking about Higgins and are we talking about Mixon both kind of having their best seasons? I never root against a player, but I would not be upset if Joe Mixon never hits that that ceiling because I'm kind of uh, a notorious Joe Mixon hater. I've never bought into him. I never really saw the hype at the level that he was getting pushed. I think he's a fine running back. I think he can be the guy in the NFL offense that gets the volume and and kind of moves forward, but he's never had this explosive upside really to me, other than a few flashes that have come in between injuries that have kept him off the field. So he's my running back 17 in dynasty right now. And you're right. I think he's only going down from this point. Like right now in my dynasty rankings, he's sandwiched in between Cam Akers and David Montgomery. It's hard for me, you know, to, to not, take one of these younger guys over Joe Mixon. He's a second contract running back, which is a huge red flag for me right off the bat. And Cincinnati's offensive line, you know, if they are going to get better, they're going to prioritize bringing in guys that have pass pro, you know, uh, tendencies over run blocking tendencies. And most importantly, we saw Joe Burrow with some really high volume games in his rookie season. So I think we could consistently see him throwing the ball 40 to 50 times a game. That doesn't leave much left over for Joe Mixon, who is a guy who's always needed to hit that 20 touch mark to really have those big games. So he could be a fine NFL guy, but at at 12 to 16 touches a game, he's not going to hit fantasy football value as a running back one, which is what we all expect him to be at this point. Yeah, I got him closer to running back 20. And it it seems kind of weird to say that, you know, but he's 25. He's a sneaky 25 for this season. And and you look at guys like Nick Chubb and a few others where that have done more, first of all, at their age, you know, and and also look like just bigger talents, you know, that the perfect storm could hit. And Mixon, it's kind of convoluted to say that perfect storm, what does it look like? Is Cincinnati really going to go that direction? Um, Let's go. uh, So deeper wide receivers, who's going to hit as a a top 36? And again, leading the witness, Gabriel Davis, and I might just stop the, the, the list right here, but I'll also include Tyler Johnson and Darnell Mooney. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, with Darnell Mooney, that's a sneaky one. Uh, I I like Darnell. I was able to kind of get in on him cheaper. I I honestly, you know, being transparent, I was not right. I was not that first guy in Darnell Mooney. I didn't soak him up in those rookie drafts. But as soon as I started seeing what he was doing on the field, that that field stretching ability, that's really nice to me. And, you know, if all these rumors are true and, and Chicago ends up upgrading the quarterback position, whether it's Wentz or whether it's anybody who can stretch the field, the amount of times Darnell Mooney was wide open and and that ball was just off place or or he was ignored. It's hard for me not to pick Darnell Mooney, but you know, all this hype with Gabriel Davis earlier, I got to stick with my guy, but I I would pick both of them. I I really think they both could. I I think Tyler Johnson's fine. I'm just not sure that he's ever going to have the opportunity, even if Chris Godwin leaves, uh, you know, at least in the next year or two in this Tom Brady era. 
Yeah, I think maybe situationally the best fit here might be what you just said. Chicago upgrades quarterback. And what if Allen Robinson isn't there? Now it's kind of wide open. And if it's a wide open committee sort of approach, Mooney looked really good. And especially for a guy that you thought was maybe more of a Deshaun Jackson lift the lid guy where he showed a ton short and intermediate game. So if he adds that, you know, to, to his, you know, I think top 36 as a wide receiver one, even if it's de facto. And then you look at Tyler Johnson, you know, he's going to be the number two or number three sort of best case. And then Gabriel Davis, he's got Stefan Diggs, which means it is possible you know, if John Brown's not there, I think he's a cut candidate. And but if if Gabriel Davis is the number two and Josh Allen is elite, the number two can finish in the top thirty six. It's just not super likely. But but I, but yeah, I think Tyler Johnson's maybe the situationally weakest bet um, of those three. Let's go big running back. Uh, here we go to close out. So top twelve in twenty twenty one. Who's got the best odds here? We've got. Uh, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna put one caveat on one of these players. So we've got Cam Akers. We've got J.K. Dobbins, and here's here's the twist: A.J. Dillon, but we know Aaron Jones is not re-signed. Okay. Ooh, this is tough. All right. Oh man, I, I like all, all three. I think really could have a shot at top twelve, uh, assuming that Aaron Jones is out of town. So right now in my rankings, J.K. Dobbins is the highest. I, I like J.K. Dobbins a lot. He was my second highest graded running back in last year's class pre-draft, and I obviously. I love the landing spot in Baltimore. Uh, I am, you know, in the Baltimore area, so I'm, I'm pretty honed in on the Ravens. And, and one thing that I just keep trying to remind people over and over again is I know Mark Ingram is leaving, but there will be a new Mark Ingram. They're going to have three to four backs. They always run that many guys. So, you know, for me, Dobbins is a high ceiling, or I should say a high floor, lower ceiling type guy. So although I really like him and although he's the highest in my rankings, if we're talking like the best shot, at that, you know, high ceiling type thing. I'm actually going to go with Cam Akers and I like AJ Dillon. I do, but I, I really love the direction and how LA kind of turned the keys over to Cam Akers there down the stretch in the playoffs. They turned it over to a rookie running back. Now, part of that is clearly Sean McVay was frustrated with his quarterback, but I also think the, the important thing is that Akers progressed through the season. He earned that starting role and I'm not worried about Daryl Henderson or Malcolm Brown going into next year. I think, you know, Akers is going to be locked in for 250 touches on the ground and he could catch the ball too. So I think we're going to see a high volume in an offense that I'm assuming is going to be better with Matt Stafford there now. Um, so I, I'm going to go with Cam Akers. However, I will say that AJ Dillon is the guy that I'm asking the AJ Dillon manager in every league, you know, what's the price? What's the price? And I got to tell you, I, I think they're smart owners because so far nobody has, nobody has given me a deal and I don't want to overpay uh, but I'm, you know, just kind of just kind of putting feelers out there. And I think that that folks are smart and they're bullish and they're assuming Aaron Jones won't be back. Yeah. Uh, Dylan was one of the notable, like, quote unquote, UTH moniker guys uh, for last year. So, I mean, I took him at 112 because I didn't have another pick in that range, which, again, right, you know, especially during the season did not look overly, overly great when you have all those wide receivers in that range producing well at various points. Uh, but, but, you know, again, get your guys, you know, as you say, and, and we weren't getting AJ Dillon for year one, you know, we knew Aaron Jones was there and I'm under the construct that they probably already made their best offer. And there, another team will pay Aaron Jones top of the market, whatever the market is, um, this off season. I wanted to ask you, since you kind of, you kind of mentioned the Baltimore area there. So number one, I would ask, is that a good landing spot for a wide receiver? Because they keep saying they need to add weapons, add weapons. Uh, is that really the 
the macro issue is that Marquise Brown isn't the guy, you know, Devin Duvernay will develop, but he's not going to be the answer. If you will, miles Boykin, they've spent capital at wide receiver with those are three top, you know, top three round picks of, of, of recent note. And then the other thing would be is JK Dobbins or a running back going to be a higher volume receiver? you know, based on how this is built in Lamar Jackson. So those would be my two sort of hometown questions for you. Yeah, that's a really good question. In terms of the wide receiver position, I'm most likely not getting excited about any wide receiver for fantasy football purposes that lands in Baltimore. Uh, The key exception would be if it is a low investment guy who comes with a big body, because that's really the struggle with Baltimore right now. They keep drafting guys that, that really aren't helping Lamar Jackson out that much. Uh, Hollywood, uh, inconsistent. Actually, I said I would stop calling him Hollywood. Marquise, <laughs> I feel like he, he's got to earn that Hollywood name back. Uh, I receiver been... 48 does not earn you the tag Hollywood. <laughs> exactly, man. He's Marquise uh, until he could prove otherwise. He, he's really struggled with separation, with timing, with Lamar. Uh, but one of the key things that I've been trying to emphasize this year was the whole offense was broken from the inside out with the offensive line. So, I'm not. I'm trying not to hold it against the wide receivers too much this season with Baltimore, but uh, a guy's you know it's got to be a specific type of, of rookie prospect. So I'm thinking of like a Nico Collins, right, six four, uh, and he's an athletic type field stretcher, uh, and he's going to go day two, right? He won't be an early investment. So if he falls to the third round of your rookie drafts, I'll get excited at value for somebody like that in Baltimore. But overall, I'm not super interested in it. Um, in terms of, of running backs contributing to the passing game, that's a really interesting question. And it's something that Baltimore's kind of struggled to really put in place. Like Justice Hill was supposed to be the guy that came in and caught balls out of the backfield in this Baltimore offense. And it never really happened. However, that being said, I think they are going to be intentional about making sure that J.K. Dobbins gets touches. And J.K. Dobbins was always a good pass catcher at Ohio State too. So if they're really focused on getting him touches, I think that they could go down that route. But at the end of the day, a wide receivers in, in offensive skill position players in general are just not the top priority for Har- Harbaugh. He came out at a presser earlier this offseason. They asked uh, a Harbaugh, you know, what are you looking for in a wide receiver that comes here? And the first thing he said is, you don't, you know, wide receivers don't come to Baltimore for stats. And as a fantasy football guy, <laughs> you can't wave a bigger red flag, right? So it has to be a certain type of wide receiver. And they really, and it has to be a cheap price. You know, even if they trade, you know, even if they went and signed somebody like Allen Robinson, proceed with caution because it's just not about the stats and it's not about the passing game at the end of the day in Baltimore. And if it is, look at that tight end position with Mark Andrews. And don't be surprised if they go out. I was having a conversation with a buddy today. Don't be surprised if they go out and and spend high draft capital on a guy like Brevin Jordan in, in day two because. We've seen their their capacity to have two tight ends in that offense and how that actually tends to work better than relying on a boundary type guy. Yeah, it hurt my soul. I was big on Jacob Breland. And when he signed there, I think it was undrafted guy. I was like, I'm intrigued, especially when you had Hayden Hurst out of the mix. Um, but yeah, two tight ends. They lost Nick Boyle. I, I really think that affected a lot of their plans last year. So yeah, I think, you know, I always say Mark Andrews is their wide receiver one, you know, and I, I don't know if that really changes all too much. It kind of works from the inside out. That's why they signed Des Bryant probably and <laughs> get that, get that little <laughs> bit of tight end presence going on. Uh, one of those guys. Um, yeah. Uh, so Matt, uh, great stuff. We were talking about uh, two or three different draft classes here and uh, where can they find you? What are you working on? And what are the things you'd like to, to point to during this uh, all important draft process? 
Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, also a big Jacob Breland fan. And if he didn't have that injury in his last season, I think he really would have projected better. So I was really disappointed when he didn't work out and he got cut. Uh, but that being said, Hey, listen, it's, it's draft 365 for me, but we are in hyperdrive. You know, this is really the time of the year where I'm pumping out content. So, you know, a couple places I'll point folks at patreon.com slash the FF educator. That's where I have my rookie big boards. And I actually right now have 169 players, 75 of them have tape evaluations, and we're working on getting the rest up here by the time we get to the draft. Uh, rookie big board, as well as my Devi big board, which is 200 players, and Dynasty big board, which is another 200 players ranked. All of that uh, for just $3 a month right now at patreon.com uh, slash the FF educator. Also, rookie, rookie big board podcast, which is uh, audio and also on YouTube uh, right now especially on YouTube, we're doing the rookie profile series. So we're running through uh, 48 different rookies here over the next couple months, each one of them with their own show, 10 minutes or less. And we do production. We do, uh, you know, the number side of it. And we also do a film breakdown. So check out rookie big board uh, and check out patreon.com slash the FF educator. Excellent. Yeah. You just, you just started that up. Um, so yeah, you're going to go through, and this is definitely going to get us through these doldrums without the combine and get us to and through uh, NFL free agency, because I, I imagine there's going to be plenty of and more downtime than we're used to uh, with less official activities uh, with the combine being one of them this, uh, this off season, but we'll take it. You know, we got through this, this NFL season. Uh, let's hope we have more normalcy as we come into the, the next months, because I remember looking back, uh, you know, last March, we didn't even know if the NFL draft, you know, we were like, Oh, please don't push this to August or some, something that looks very dire. And just really thinking back to 12 months ago, I mean, things are so much, you know, so much cleaner and how they, they turned out. I mean, we, we complained, Oh, we got a Wednesday NFL game. Oh, for an analyst perspective, this is horrible. You know, it's like every day we got this stuff with lineups and again, we, we trudged through and we, we made our way. So, uh, so yeah, excellent stuff as we go through 2021, uh, reminder about, uh, about UTH again, UTHdynasty.com official podcast here and, uh, patreon.com slash UTH for all your additional and bonus content. Great to have Matt Hicks on this week. So he included wherever you can find him. And until next time, never settle, refuse to be average and keep building those dynasties.